This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. My guest, Nicholas Cage, has appeared in more than 100 films. Depending on which ones you've seen, you might think of him as an action movie hero. He's done plenty of those. You might also remember him starring with Cher in the romantic comedy Moonstruck or playing the dim-witted but lovable criminal in the Coen Brothers' Raising Arizona. He won a Best Actor Oscar playing a writer drinking himself to death and leaving Las Vegas. In Adaptation, Cage played two characters, twin brothers, sometimes in conversation with each other in the same room. In Face Off, he and John Travolta's character trade physical identities through face transplants, so he has to morph into Travolta's character in the film. Cage grew up in California around movie making and is a student of film history. He's known for meticulous preparation for his characters and sometimes taking them to extremes in his performances. He's earned a Golden Globe nomination for his latest role, which is somewhat more subdued. In the movie Dream Scenario, he plays a college professor who strangely finds he's appearing as a bystander in the dreams of his friends, his family, his students, and eventually millions of people who make the connection and make him famous for, well, nothing. Dream Scenario, written and directed by Christopher Borgley, is in theaters now. Nicholas Cage, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's been a while. It has been. Thank you for having me back. Let's start by uh, listening to a clip from the new film, Dream Scenario. Uh, in this scene, you're a you know, college professor named Paul Matthews, and you're teaching a class where he now realizes that many of his students have seen him in their dreams, and he asks them about it. I'll just note that this is a, a visual clip. You won't, obviously won't see that as a radio audience, but there are moments where there's some, some noise, and, and it's essentially two dreams where the students in question are dreaming about terrifying situations. So let's listen. Who's certain they've actually had a dream about me? Okay, let's explore this. This might get us somewhere interesting. Does anyone want to share the content of their dream? Yes, you? Well, um, <clears throat> I'm in this forest, wandering around, eating these strange mushrooms. And I'm in like a full tuxedo for some reason. <laughs> and there's other people also dressed up, but they're all scared, like frozen in fear. And then I realize it's because of this really tall man running towards me. Are you talking to me? Yes. Paul, he'll kill us. Paul, I've never seen these. Beautiful. And that's all I remember. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> huh. interesting. So I'm looking at the mushrooms instead of helping. Oh, I suppose, yeah. Okay, let's hear another one, anyone? Okay, so I'm just observing again. But that's funny. <laughs> Interesting one. Anyone else? 
And that's our guest, Nicholas Cage, in the new movie Dream Scenario. You, you know, as I listen, the voice of your character there, uh, Paul Matthews, it seems a little higher than your conversational voice. You want to tell us about getting into this role physically? Well, um, I'm glad you noticed that. It, uh, it was uh, a lot of thought went into uh, trying to create a character that was as far away from my own presentation as I could get, and that required changing the register of my voice as well. I've, I've found that over the years, um, I'm more recognized by my voice, my so-called uh, Mojave drawl, than anything else. And uh, when we were, Christopher and I, the director and I were designing the character, he wanted to change my look so that people wouldn't see so-called Nick Cage, but rather Paul Matthews. So he decided to change the shape of my nose and uh, very minimally just modify it and then also remove the hair. We, we decided that would be a good look, a more perhaps professorial look. We added some weight to the character. I wanted to change the way I moved. I was more uh, uh, stooping or hunched over, uh, walking slower. But it was uh, a point that I made that we have to change the voice. Uh, and so I thought I would raise it a bit and add a more adenoidal sound to, to Paul's delivery, his speaking delivery. You know, this is a character who longs for more recognition. You know, he's sort of an academic, but not all that successful and feels kind of resentful that other people may have taken his ideas and he can't quite get his book written. He's ambitious, but never quite getting there. Um, that's part, That was part of this, too, I guess. You know, they say this is a comedy, which, sure, there are very funny moments in the movie, but... There is something tragic about Paul. Uh, he never really uh, actively sought out a spotlight. And what's happening to him is happening inexplicably, that people are suddenly dreaming about him around the world and he's become famous. And um, it, I think he sees it more as an opportunity to be able to get his book published, a book about ants. It's called Intelligence. And he's frustrated because a person that was in class with him, not his own student, but a person that he was studying with took one of his ideas and published a book, and that hurts him. But but it's, it, it is Paul's fault because he has no follow-through. I mean, he's I think he's a good professor. I think he really enjoys teaching. I think that his students do uh, like his course, but but he hasn't put pen to paper and, and written one word of his book. This is very much a movie about how technology, you know, can turn something, some occurrence into an internet meme and make it widely known. And you're, the director here, Christopher Borgley, is Norwegian and a lot younger than a lot of the directors that you've worked with. Did uh, I don't know? Did you felt he had a different media sensibility? Uh, you know, see, this is an interesting question. Um, yes. Uh, the other thing is, I always knew. You know, I've been doing this for. Uh, I guess we're approaching almost forty-five years, almost half a century, and. You know, 
I've made different kinds of movies, different genres, and kept going at it. But but I realized at some point that uh, what I guess I would call the old guard, the keepers at the gate, had already made up their minds about me, and uh, that I wasn't going to get any uh, uh, vitality from that group. So I started actively seeking who would be the young filmmakers that are emerging that, that may have perhaps grown up with me and might want to try something with uh, with me and see what they can do uh, with with me and and uh, and I found that that approach uh, looking at uh, Sarnowski and pig and now Christopher with dream scenario has been incredibly rewarding because these are people that um, are so full of life, they're so full of imagination, and they haven't had their dreams, if you will, uh, whipped out of them yet by corporate uh, thinking or the industry, and they're, they're, they're vital, they have life, and that keeps me fertile. And uh, Christopher was, for me, someone that I had complete faith in. I uh, read his script, which was one of the five scripts in doing this for 45 years or however long, that I said, I have to make this movie. I didn't want to change a word. The other scripts were Vampire's Kiss, Leaving Las Vegas, Raising Arizona, and Adaptation, and now Dream Scenario. I don't want to give away too much, but what happens in this film is there's this weird thing where this professor appears in a sort of a passive bystander way in these people's dreams. And then there's a turn which, in a way, makes him a national villain as much as he was a sort of, you know, hero for for doing this. And I don't know if we want to talk particularly about that, but it made me think the fact that the Internet could make him a monster, and it really kind of ruins his life. Um, And I wonder if you identified at all with that as somebody who, in this Internet world, finds their work just taken and exaggerated in ways that just aren't you? Well, uh, it's a bit of a Pandora's box. Um, When I decided to be a film actor, uh, 1982, I think I started working professionally, I was thinking about people like uh, Brando and uh, James Dean and Bogart and Cagney and... You know, I wanted to see what I could do with uh, uh, screen performance. But at that time, we didn't have the Internet. Um, I signed up to be a film actor. That I did. Uh, But I I didn't sign up to be uh, an Internet uh, meme. (laughs) Uh, That was new. We didn't have the Internet when I started uh, acting so many, many, many years ago. But... I have subsequently made friends with it. You know, we all have to evolve. Um, You know, I got to a place with film performance very quickly. You know, my heroes like uh, the the performances in Midnight Cowboy, they were always on my mind. But I felt that very early on I had reached a kind of... uh, dead end, if you will, with naturalism in screen performance. Now, we've all been 
uh, somewhat obsessed with a 1970s style of naturalism that is has gone on ad infinitum, that this is what so-called good acting must be. But for me, as a, as a young man who was interested in all art forms, uh, was even interested in um, what I called art synchronicity, meaning that what you can do in one art form, you can do in another art form. If you can be impressionistic, surrealistic, uh, cubist even in painting or, or in music, well, then why can't you be that in film performance? I was looking in the past of film performance, like the German expressionistic performances of Max Schreck and Nosferatu or Fritz Lang. Um, and I, I decided that this is what is, chore- I called it choreographed acting. But I found a lot of energy in that and a lot of style in that. And so I wanted to, like with Vampire's Kiss, try to bring that back into a modern film And I could do it because the character, sadly, was losing his mind. So I could do all these bizarre gestures. And um, subsequently, while I was doing that, the Internet was kicking into high gear. And they were cherry-picking these sort of expressions, if you will, like the you don't say and what have you. And it became uh, memified. I guess I coined a word with that, memified. Now... That's okay because it kept me in the conversation and I had it was an adjustment. I had to get to come to terms with it. I didn't want everything to be reduced to just one image or one 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 meltdown, if you will, or so-called cage rage. But again, the silver lining was it, it kept the, the memification kept me in the conversation, but it wasn't what I signed up for. So yes, I was stimulated by it, I was confused by it, and I was frustrated by it. But then along came Dream Scenario, and I I was able to apply those feelings to what I thought was, as far out as Paul's experience is, uh, similar. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I, until I was doing the research for this interview, I I had never seen these internet montages, things like you know Nick Cage's ultimate freakouts. Right, um, right. I want to play just a little piece of one. Um, well, well, before you do that, okay. I just want to say one thing. I think that there's something to be had here vicariously. I think that whatever path I was on. Uh, spoke to people in, in in a broad sense on the internet. What we have to confine to certain social standards, understandably. You know, we want to we want to be good members of society. But I think the id underneath all of us wants a point of expression. And I think the the memification, if you will, gave folks that. Right. Right. Well, this this is just a little piece of one of these montages, and, and this is in this is from the film Vampire's Kiss, where you play this. I guess he's a literary agent in New York who has the swinging style, gets bitten by a woman he convinces a vampire and kind of kind of comes unraveled. And this is just a moment where he's talking to his psychiatrist about an issue at work. Let's listen. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z, huh? 
That's from Vampire's Kiss. It's one of my favorite recitations of the alphabet. <laughs> yeah, me too. I just think it's so funny. I, I love that scene. You grew up in California, went to Beverly Hill High School, right? Uh, if, if anybody was born to be in the movies, maybe it was you. Your uncle was Francis Ford Coppola. Um, is it true that you were running around on the set of Godfather 2 when you were a kid? I was there in uh, Lake Tahoe with my cousins. I adored my childhood with my cousins. We had so much fun together. And I do remember visiting the set, yes. Um, not surprising that you would be interested in this. I, you, know, you, you worked taking tickets in a movie theater. Um, what, what convinced you you wanted to pursue this? I think it began when I was very, very young. I was maybe four or five, wow. and I was in front of the television set, and I thought the people inside the TV were so much more interesting than the people <laughs> at home that I wanted to try and get inside the TV. You know, a lot of people think that this would be fun, then find out it's really not so easy. Um, did you find it difficult? Uh I felt blessed that I was doing exactly what I was meant to do, that I'm, I'm in, a, in a job that I think my DNA w was programmed for. I, I, I feel that I'm lucky that I found it. I almost didn't. Uh, I had another path that I was going to take if it didn't happen, and you know, I was going to do one more audition, and if that didn't work out, I was going to get on a boat and uh, go fishing and write short stories. So the acting worked out, but uh, I was thinking about a plan B. Yeah. What was the audition that rescued you? I think Valley Girl was really the time that I, I found my voice, and I have to give Martha Coolidge credit. Uh, without her, um, Nicolas Cage would not exist. She was the one that empowered me, guided me. She gave me a great direction, uh, hurt but not defeated in one of the scenes that I was playing. And I've used that ever since. And I think if Martha had not discovered me, I, I, I would be on the boat. Um, and she really gave me the confidence, the, the belief in myself that I could do this. When did you change your name from Nick Coppola to Nicolas Cage? I mean, I gather that was so that you wouldn't be seen as, you know. <laughs> well, I had a shrewd reason. It wasn't just, you know, to try to avoid, uh, you know, so-called nepotism. Um, I changed my name the first time was on my audition for Valley Girl. Uh, I did it uh, partly because on the set of Fast Times it was a subject of teasing that I was a Coppola and I had no right to think that I could act simply because of my, my illustrious uncle. Yeah, that was Fast Times um, at Ridgemont High. Yeah, there, Fast right? Times. But So I changed my name to Cage, and happily, Martha, she did not know the connection. Um, that's a true story. And she cast me as Cage. It was the first time that I went into an audition with my new name, and I got the part, and... That was uh, hugely empowering for me uh, to to believe I could do it um, on my own steam. But the shrewd reason, and no one really talks about this, and I haven't brought it up before, is that I, I had the prescience to know that uh, filmmakers are a very uh, competitive and somewhat uh, egocentric group, directors. And I didn't think that any director would want... A, another director's name, no less the name Coppola, on above the title of their movie. So I was also thinking that in terms of business. Um, 
you had a lot of real success early. I mean, you had Moonstruck and Raising Arizona before you were 25. Uh, I, you, you played with Cher in Moonstruck. Uh, it's a very memorable role. You know, I've talked to a lot of actors, and, and many of them will look back at movies they did when they were in their 20s and just getting going and kind of, you know, wince. They say, well, I really didn't know what I was doing then. I mean, your performances seem to hold up when I look at those old movies. How do, how do you feel about them? I uh, I don't go down memory lane unless I'm forced to, and and I did uh, a profile on Vanity Fair where I was looking at old movies, and one of them was Moonstruck. But I I do think that uh, there was uh, an energy to the early work that that I'm happy with, uh, and I and I think again that I felt that it made sense that I was uh, an actor, that I was I was being able to or being invited to play these parts that and it was uh life-changing for me it was uh, in many ways cathartic in many ways therapeutic it was very very helpful that i could do something constructive with all the energy that i had we're going to take another break here uh, we are speaking with nicholas cage he stars in the new film dream scenario he'll be back to talk more about his life and career after the short break i'm dave davies and this is fresh air This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. My guest is actor Nicholas Cage, who's appeared in more than 100 films, among them Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, Con Air, Face Off, Adaptation, and Leaving Las Vegas, for which he won the Academy Award for Best Actor. He's earned a Golden Globe nomination for his latest role. He stars in the film Dream Scenario, in which he plays a college professor who mysteriously begins appearing in the dreams of millions of people. It's in theaters now. I do want to go back earlier to Raising Arizona, which is just a favorite of so many. It's by the Coen brothers. I'll play a little scene here. I mean, you play this kind of wacky character, H.I. McDonough, who's a not bright but earnest criminal who robs convenience stores with an unloaded gun and eventually falls in love with and marries a policewoman, Ed, short for Edwina, played by Holly Hunter. 
He goes straight, they get married and discover they cannot have children. So they hatch this plot because they read about a furniture magnate named Nathan Arizona, whose wife had five kids, quintuplets, after fertility treatment. So they figure they've got more than they can handle. Why don't we just take one? So you drive over and you shinny up a ladder and come down with a little baby. (laughs) And this is the scene where you've returned to the car and you are talking to your wife, played by Holly Hunter. Let's listen. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah, he's awful damn good. I think I got the best one. I bet they were all beautiful. All babies are beautiful. This one's awful damn good, though. Don't you cuss around him. He's fine, he is. I think it's Nathan Jr. We are doing the right thing, aren't we, Hi? I mean, they had more than they could handle. Well, now, honey, we've been over this and over this, and there's what's right, and there's what's right, and never the twain shall meet. But don't you think his mama will be upset? I mean... Overly? Well, of course she'll be upset, Sugar, but she'll get over it. She's got four little babies almost as good as this one. It's like when I was robbing convenience stores. <laughs> I love him so much. <laughs> I know you do, honey. I love him so much. <laughs> I know you do. It's still funny. <laughs> it is, and Holly Hunter is just magnificent in that movie, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, no, she is. They are. I mean, they all are. John Goodman, uh, they're all funny. Um, and, and, and it has this, wow, this crazy Coen Brothers sensibility. Um, the look, I mean, his hair is going like three different directions. He's got this weird look in his eye. <laughs> what did you do to get the, the look of the, and, and, and just the, the feel and the, and the sound of this guy? So... Again, this was one of the five best scripts I've ever read, and I knew right away I had to play the part. Um, I thought the look kind of would be almost Looney Tunes, like uh, Woody Woodpecker with the hair standing up. And and I I put a lot of thought into the delivery. We worked on the accent together, uh, Joel and I, and I sent him different tapes of how I was getting close to the sound, the sort of uh, rural sound. Uh, try to get away from an, an urban sound, and we built it together. I I still think it's my favorite Cone Brothers movie. I, I I just think that movie really stands up uh, the test of time. They're really careful with casting. Was it hard to get the role? I must have auditioned for that movie five or six times, and I remember Joel saying, "I'm laughing, but I don't know why I'm laughing." And I said, <laughs> "Well, that's good, isn't it?" <laughs> you know, I mean, I really wanted the part, and they were talking about a lot of other actors. But I, uh, I fought for it, and uh, I'm glad I did. I'm very, very happy with, with that movie. You know, I wanted to, to ask about a film that you did with Werner Herzog, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. You play a, a, a dirty cop who's on drugs and alcohol. And I know that you were studied you know, German expressionist filmmaking and loved some of Herzog's work. How did you get that role? What was it like working with him? Uh, well, Werner called and, and wanted me to have a go with Bad Lieutenant, which was done beautifully before with Harvey Keitel, but he was creating a completely different interpretation, and I don't think he, he had even seen the original film. Uh, so I, I was interested in Werner Herzog. I do think he's in the pantheon of the greatest filmmakers, and I wanted to work with him. I thought it was an exciting thing to do because at that time I was largely uh, making adventure films, and I had wanted to get back to a more independent and expressionistic style. 
it, it is kind of an unnerving performance, uh, as you in that that film. You um, you know you're clean shaven. I had a beard in a lot of movies, and and you're thin. And it seems to me like your teeth are maybe a little clenched together. Like you're you know you're just kind of gritting your way through all of this, and something's going on in your head. Yeah. Well, that's that's my idea of what cocaine would do to somebody. There always seems to be like a, a clenched jaw or something. I thought I'd, I'd play with that in the performance. Yeah. I it, There was a story at one point at which you were getting ready for one of these scenes, and Herzog himself got a little rattled by what you were up to. Um, mm-hmm. Am I right about this? Yeah, you are. Well, I was snorting something called inositol, which is like saccharin, but I was trying to do that to get some kind of uh, uh, expressionistic recall of uh, what cocaine might do. And uh, and so you, you do that as a kind of uh, uh, hook, uh, the inositol, but also... Uh, you apply that with a little imagination and uh, start really amping up in in terms of the character and psyching myself up for the performance. And Werner said, now, Nicholas, what is in that vial? And I was like, oh, man, really? I mean, I did all this prep, and now you're asking me what's in in the vial? I think he really thought I was on cocaine, which would be ridiculous. I, I don't do drugs, and I sure as heck wouldn't do drugs while making a movie. And and what happened? Oh, he he backed off, and we got the scene, and then he put lizards in the shot, and he, he started doing close-ups of iguanas and whatnot. And I think he was trying to get to the same uh, frequency that his uh, lead actor was on. <laughs> there are a couple of places where reptiles make appearances in that film that are like, what is this? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> why? I mean, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, it's no secret that I had purchased a two-headed snake, and uh, we had a party. I was living in the Lillurie Mansion, which is the most haunted mansion in America. In, in New Orleans, right? In New Orleans, and I invited uh, Ed Pressman, Ober, and Werner, and we all and the and uh, w- the cast, and we all had a big party. And then I pulled out the the, uh, the I went into the room and got the two-headed snake, and he said, "I have to put that in the movie." I said, "No, you can't put this in the movie; it's personal." And uh, then he just started putting alligators and iguanas and snakes in the movie, but he never got the two-headed snake. We're going to take another break here. We are speaking with Nicolas Cage. He stars in the new movie, Dream Scenario. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with actor Nicolas Cage. He's made more than a hundred films. His latest is Dream Scenario. It's in theaters now. 
Um, wanted to talk about Leaving Las Vegas, which uh, I guess was made in 1995. Again, relatively early in your career. You, you play an alcoholic screenwriter whose life has fallen apart, I guess due to his drinking. So he sells everything he owns, moves to Las Vegas to drink himself to death where he connects with a, a prosperous sex worker played by Elizabeth Shue. And here's a scene in which she's invited him to leave the cheap hotel he's been staying at and move into her apartment. Let's listen. Before we proceed onwards, there's something I have to say, okay? Okay. I've come this far. Here I am in your house. I want you to let me pay this month's rent. No. All right? Why? Because, because it's better for me that way, okay? I'll tell you, right now, I'm in love with you. But, be that as it may, I am not here to force my twisted soul into your life. I know that. We both know I'm a drunk. And I know you're a hooker. I hope you understand that I'm a person who is totally at ease with this, which is not to say that I'm indifferent or I don't care. I do. It simply means I trust and accept your judgment. And that is our guest Nicholas Cage with Elizabeth Shue in the film Leaving Las Vegas. You won an Oscar for Best Actor for that role. Um, I, I think that's one of the films you say was one of the best screenplays you ever read. Um, yes. W- what interested you in the character? Uh, well, I read the script and right away I thought it was the, 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 the well, for lack of a better word, the coolest uh, relationship, a romantic relationship I've ever read in a screenplay. I, these two severely injured people uh, find true love. And to me it was a, a very uh, moving and, and uh, hopeful love story, uh, as tragic and and dark as it got. I mean, at the time, you know, I wanted to find a a drama that I could really express myself in. And and along comes this script by Mike Figgis, and I just uh, fell in love with it immediately. You know, did you find yourself, as you read the script, rooting for this guy to turn around and reverse his decision to drink himself to death? I don't know that I was rooting for him. I was feeling for him. I was feeling the the poignancy of his situation, and uh, I felt that I could play it. Uh, I, I cared about him. And when I read the novel by John O'Brien, I... I, I felt even more, and it's interesting because this family came on the set, and there were little things that I would choose for the character that turned out to be actually his choices, the kind of watch he wore, the kind of car he drove, and they were kind of amazed, the, the family. I don't know how it happened. It's, uh, I don't want to get too metaphysical about it, but it, it, it seemed like a doorway had opened, and I was feeling John. You know, in this movie, you're drunk in, I think, probably every scene— there are a lot of ways to play a drunk, and it's easy to overdo it. I'm, I'm wondering, did did you prepare much? How did you prepare to do this and do it in an authentic way? 
Well, I had seen different alcoholic performances, and the one that really stood out to me as genuinely drunk was Albert Finney in Under the Volcano. Within the first two minutes of him walking through the streets of Mexico, I said, that guy's really drunk. And Figgis, who directed Leave Me Las Vegas, had worked with Albert. And I asked Mike, was was Albert drinking? And so Mike asked Albert, and Albert said, no, you tell Nick that I would just take a swig and I'd spit it out just so I could get the feeling of it, the recall of it. And so I tried that. And the only time I was ever really uh, uh, loaded was, the again, the casino scene, because I wanted to... Uh, dangerously uh, high-risk experiment. I wanted to try to get a blackout on camera because I thought that would get to that level of believability that Albert had in Under the Volcano. And that was a scary thing to do. And I said, we're only going to do this once, so make sure you get it because I'm not doing it again. But um, I'm happy with the results. I I, I would never do that again. I, I, I do think that if the movie had gone on longer, like if it had gone on for four months, then it, it, it would have been a disaster. But the fact that it was only a four-week shoot and it moved very quickly, it, it, it didn't uh, have any lasting impact. Wow. I, I want to make sure I get this right. I mean, as I recall in that scene, you're at a blackjack table. And you pull the table over and the chips go everywhere and I think the waitress behind you falls down. Uh, did you actually pass out? Uh, no, I didn't pass out, but none of that was, was choreographed and the security came in. It was a mess, but that's exactly what I wanted for the scene. I wanted that shocking uh, reality. Um, I was looking for the most real expression of the dangers of alcoholism. And when you say security came in, you, you mean not actors, but the actual casino no, security? No, yeah, they were in the scene. They came in. They, they, that's all on camera. That, those weren't actors. Okay. Uh, <laughs> everybody calm down. And they ask you not to film there anymore, I imagine. Something like that <laughs> happened. I don't know all the, the cleanup yeah. that Mike Figgis had to do. But, you know, he, he admitted he was angry about it, but he also admitted that it worked. Wow. I read that you said when you were talking about this film that you never thought you would win an Oscar. And I, I, I didn't know if you meant by that that you never thought you would win it for that performance or that you'd never win one at all. At all. I meant at all. I, I did Leaving Las Vegas because nobody else wanted to do it. It was the darkest script in town. No studio would touch it. And, and they were all afraid of it because of the material. And I thought, well, heck, I'm not going to win an Oscar anyway for anything, so let's do it. You know? and, and then, lo and behold, when you're not looking for something, it comes to you. You know, we haven't talked about your personal life much, and I don't know how, if you want to or not. But you know, it's been widely reported that you had, at a certain point, a lot of debts, um, some to the IRS. And I gather this was from purchasing some expensive, far-flung homes, which then the market crashed and you couldn't get out of them easily. And I mean, you, you have had five marriages. I mean, those are a lot of commitments. To, and I'm, I'm wondering, you ever thought you have an issue with impulse control? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, you live and learn. And, um, you know, I started very young and, uh, and, you know, thankfully I've paid everybody back and I've, um, Worked my way out of it. I believed I could work my way out of it, and I did, and I'm proud of that. Yeah, didn't file for bankruptcy, as some urged you to do. Um, yeah. Um, what's what's next for you? Do you want to give us anything to, well, to look for? Uh, right now, I'm enjoying uh, Dream Scenario. I'm very happy with this movie. Uh, 
You know, Dave, I, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm, I'm at this point, you know, I'm looking at uh, what I've already done in cinema and uh, exploring the boundaries of where we can go with film performance. And, you know, I, 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 feel, I feel like I've pretty much said what I've had to say. Um, I think I might explore a new format. I, I might try television. I've never done that. I... I uh, my son introduced me to Breaking Bad, and I was very impressed with Cranston in that series. And I, maybe that's something I should look at. Okay. Well, we will look forward to it if it happens. Um, Nicholas Cage, I've uh, enjoyed it. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nicholas Cage stars in the new film Dream Scenario. Coming up, jazz critic Kevin Whitehead remembers the career of innovative composer Carla Bley, who died earlier this year. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This is Fresh Air. Composer Carla Bley died in October at the age of 87. She led her own large and small touring bands from the 1970s until a few years ago. But jazz musicians had been playing her enigmatic compositions long before that. Today, jazz critic Kevin Whitehead traces Carla Bley's development as a composer. Carla Bley's Jesus Maria, played by clarinetist Jimmy Jufri with Paul Bley on piano in 1961. The tune shows Carla's knack for building a piece around one or two barely mutating phrases, giving improvisers shapes to develop and a mood to maintain. She'd been making up songs since she was small. While married to Paul Bley, he encouraged her to write tunes for him. Soon more folks were playing them. Pianist Steve Kuhn played another deceptively simple-sounding early Carla Bley tune, Ida Lupino, with the Jufri Trio's Steve Swallow again on bass.
That melody ends with a whisper, an uncommon move. Carla Blay heard the value in being understated, where some 60s jazz was all testosterone. In 1967, she wrote and arranged the album A Genuine Tong Funeral for vibraphonist Gary Burton. Her tune Grave Train evoked Nina Rota's music for Fellini films. on tuba, Jimmy Nepper on trombone, and once more Steve Swallow on bass. In 1969, Blay organized bassist Charlie Hayden's Liberation Music Orchestra, which played her arrangements of Latin American revolutionary songs and a bit of her own droll music. She was learning to deal with larger forces and a light comic touch. Vile's German theater songs sound like an influence there. Blay's inspirations came from all over. Eric Satie's reductive piano music is in there, alongside Duke Ellington's reliance on key soloists. By the late 60s, Carla Blay was busy with a three-year project that was the opposite of understated. The guest star-drenched, multifarious, triple album Escalator Over the Hill, with a huge cast including jazz luminaries and rock singers Linda Ronstadt and Jack Bruce. Play worked well with a few rock musicians, from NRBQ's Terry Adams to Pink Floyd's Nick Mason. She disparaged her own piano and organ playing, but a short stint in a 1970s Jack Bruce band gave her a taste for the road. She put together a little big band of nine or ten pieces, booked her own tours, and put out her own LPs. Blay's 1980 classic Social Studies had a few splendid tunes she'd revisit later. This is Reactionary Tango, with Gary Valenti on trombone, old ally Steve Swallow now on bass guitar.
Carla Bley wrote lovely charts, but there was often something tongue-in-cheek about them, like that Dance Academy tango beat. It's as if she worried we'd think she took it all too seriously. The orchestra kept growing till she was calling it her very big band. Then she scaled back to eight pieces, then four or five, finally two or three. By the 1990s, she and Steve Swallow were an item and toured as a duo, sometimes joined by saxophonist Andy Shepard. Now, understated Carla came back, playing some early tunes and new ones echoing old conundrums. It was as if her music had come full circle, but now with more humor. Carla Bley died in October at 87, one of the great and singular jazz composers of our time. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the books Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film, Why Jazz, and New Dutch Swing. If you'd like to catch up on interviews you've missed, like our interview with Andre Brouwer, who died last week, or Terry's conversation with David Byrne, who shares some of his favorite Christmas music, check out our podcast. You'll find lots of fresh air interviews. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. And for a look behind the scenes at the show, subscribe to our newsletter at whyy.org slash fresh air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor Linda Mood Bell. Linda Mood Bell's summer instruction for reading, comprehension, and math can help students catch up or get ahead. Summer instruction is designed to help children feel more confident, prepared, and excited about learning and school in the fall. Linda Mood Bell's evidence-based approach is individualized for all types of students with challenges that affect learning, including dyslexia. Learn more at lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.